Hello and welcome to What Goes Around podcast. We'd like to dedicate today's show to the memory of Brian Shepherd, the fool who inspired so many people to become involved in the Adderbury Village Morris Mann revival. Welcome to What Goes Around podcast. My name is Anne Frankenstein. And I'm Eamon Mutter. Uh, on today's podcast, we're going to kick things off by talking about taste and the development of taste and a lovely experience that I had with my old lecturer, Tim Lawrence, who's uh, written many, many books about disco and the history of DJing. And uh, I went in to talk to his um, extremely bored and apathetic <laughs> class that he teaches at the University of East London. More on that later. And we'll be uh, taking our first tentative steps into the crazy world of K-pop by visiting the K-pop pop-up shop in Bethnal Green. Uh, this is something that if you're over 25, you probably have no idea what's going on, but I'm telling you, it's coming for you. K-pop, it's like the Beatles, but with better hair and nicer skin. And we'll also be hearing from the actor and writer and filmmaker Tim Plester, uh, all about his phonographic memories and uh, his love of Mars dancing. See, it's not all what you expect on this show. Roll VT. Hey, Anne. Hey. What goes around? <laughs> well, this week I'm very excited because in a couple of days' time I'm going back to my old university, University of East London, London's newest university. Um, it might not actually still be, but that was the tagline back in the day. But I'm going to have a chat with my old course leader, Tim Lawrence, who is... An amazing guy. He wrote a book. Well, he's written many, many books about disco and disco culture. Uh, his first one is called Love Saves the Day. More recently, he's written one called Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor, which focuses on a very specific period, time period in New York, late 70s to early 80s New York, and uh, all the music and cultural stuff that was happening. You know, he's like an academic about disco. I remember when I was at uni, one time he was late for a lecture because he was stuck in New York at a Sylvester conference. That is the best excuse for being late I've ever heard in my life. So this is why I'm like this. You know, a lot of it is in thanks to uh, to Tim Lawrence. But he very kindly asked me to come and uh, do a QA and a with him for his um, students Mm -hmm. um, because he's teaching a module all about taste and how taste develops and staying faithful to your taste and genre and what it really means and identity and all. I mean, I, I not very academic but I think I think that's the gist of it but we had a we had a big chat um earlier in the week and uh you know um just in preparation for the Q&A talking about the progression of my taste and how it all came together it just made me think like when I was at uni I remember we had this one lecture I don't think it was Tim's lecture but it was someone who just gave a lecture gen- generally about um personal identity and it's how it's all nonsense and completely arbitrary and me being a person who was so obsessed with music and music was who I was being told that was just so I was like what I it's just random that I like all this stuff it's not in board um and it took me a long time to recover it was very dramatic response I'm I'm not even sure if I agree with that well yeah now I think I would have another opinion but it was just interesting talking to Tim and thinking about the chronology of how my taste Mm. developed and how it could have gone off in some other direction and also how the stuff that I was listening to around the time when my taste was starting to really form is the formative stuff that I listen to now and it just has so much 
resonance and just is so meaningful. Stuff like Tom Waits and Bob Dylan that I was stealing off my dad. And it's just interesting to think about. And he was of the opinion that um, taste is a lot more narrow now and people are very siloed in terms of what they listen to, which I don't agree with at all. No, I would say, well, I think it goes it goes two ways, really. Um, everything's out there now, you know, uh, so for those people who who have a broad taste, a genuine broad taste, they can genuinely have a massive eclectic load of Spotify stuff or whatever, um, and it's no problem. Uh, and I think also, certainly a few years ago, I, I don't know about now, but a few years ago, I did a, a business course in Manchester, uh, and um, my business tutor got a load of record execs in i think the guys from heavenly social were involved mm. and a few other labels and stuff and they they're all giving a chat and this is um i guess the beginnings of the 2000s maybe tail end of the night but they were saying you know it's all broken down now even back then because uh there was a stage where you know in the 70s and 80s you ch- chose your tribe i'm a goth i'm a metaler i'm a hip-hop guy i'm a whatever and that's kind of what you did but that was all breaking down even by the 90s because you'd have um, a, a kid in sixth form and he'd have the Snoop Dogg CD, <laughs> but he'd also have Oasis and mm. he'd also have, you know, some old stuff, some Doors or whatever it might be. And it weren't no thing. Yeah. And I think actually when CDs came out, one of the great things they did was they reissued everything pretty much. All the classics came out on quite cheap. It used to be seven ninety nine for a for a reissue CD. Mm, until they until they thought, hey, we can get people to pay thirteen quid for this. And you know. <laughs> but for a while it was kind of golden. And you know, even then they were always saying like I think that's all breaking down because a kid can like techno and they can like rock music. And they, they don't really see the difference. And I can only imagine that becoming more so over the years as, as streaming and all that sort of stuff's come in. But I think where you might have a point is that if you decide to be one thing then you can set up your you know if you only ever look at grime Mm. the algorithm is only ever going to show you grime it's true echo chamber spotify echo chamber Uh, i did meet uh, someone uh, once who was had a startup business and it was really sinister it was (laughs) honestly it really it was was, i was gonna do some work for him because i used to be a games designer and they wanted to do some an app thing. I was going to do some work for him and he was explaining what it was. And what it was is like, a, it was it's a, it, technically he said it's a remixing service. I said, mm. that sounds interesting. So what it does, if you are listening to, I don't know, hip hop exclusively, and you say, oh, he, this guy loves Kendrick Lamar. Just, he plays Kendrick Lamar every day. Absolutely loves it. What they'll do is they'll find an acapella of Kendrick Lamar and they'll stick it over the top of a house track a mashup, an old uh, like school mashup. Essentially a mashup, but like, but they they would term it as remixing on the fly or or specific remix. But what they were doing is they were kind of making AI remixes. So they were saying, oh, he's liked this and he's liked that. So let's give him something that's a bit of both of those squished together in the hope, and then all of his suggestions coming off the back of that will lead him into the wider sphere of all this house music because mm. there's more money to be made there or whatever. God, the AI stuff is... I mean, AI is why we're doing this podcast, isn't it? Because it's yeah. going to be soon enough that they'll catch up with our DJing and uh, it'll all be over. I mean, it's already there in many ways. I say don't trust the robots because, you know... But don't tell them we said that. No, nah, fuck them, I hate robots. <laughs> <laughs> Down with our metal overlords! <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, uh, certainly uh, a lot of people I know are very into Spotify. And when I was uh, working in an office, I did listen to Spotify quite a lot because um, it was there and it, I was at a desk and a computer all day, blah, blah, blah. But it does kind of, it does, 
I wouldn't say it silos you. I don't think it does that. I think it takes you down quite well-trodden paths rather than silos you. Because I think if you listen to Oasis, it will keep throwing things out. You know, it might start with Blur, but eventually it'll get down to something like British Sea Power or something a bit more interesting, Mm. do you know what I mean? And You know, of course, there's a very clear path that goes that way, but I wouldn't say it silos you in the way that certainly back in the days we had to buy your records. Uh, If you were into rock, you'd listen to Tommy Vance on on Radio 1 on a Friday night. That was the only show you got. Mm. So you listened to that, and then you came in and you bought what was in the heavy metal section, and that was it. You didn't look at the rest of the shop and you went out. Do you know what I mean? I don't. I don't think that is quite what's happening. Well, the, the Spotify has a Discover Weekly playlist, which I love. So it comes up with this new playlist for you every week. There's thirty tracks on it, and it's basically stuff it's suggesting to you based on other stuff that you have saved in playlists. But the way that it works, the way the algorithm works, is that it will go to, say, you have a Judy Sale track in your playlist. For example, um, it will go to someone else's Spotify account. They might also have that track and it'll pick the things that they have before and after that track and it'll put it in your Discover Weekly. Obviously, you never find out who they are. It's sinister though, isn't it? It's, I, I like it. I, it makes me feel connected. I, I don't know if I like the idea that I'm listening to because, you know... You just want credit if someone finds a, something interesting because of you. Well, do you know, I think I've, I've got a public life and a private life. Do you know? And uh, pub- <laughs> publicly, publicly, I'm a DJ and I want to... I wanna, get people turned onto these things. Mm. Privately, I also listen to a lot of schlock that I don't expect anyone else to like, you know? <laughs> well, that's fine. Then you get more delicious schlock and no one has to know about it. That's the thing. Oof, but it's be. just interesting that Tim Lawrence, who is a university course leader, who is obviously teaching 18, 19, 20-year-olds mm. on a music course, is implying that um, people's music taste is increasingly siloed. I just think that's mm. interesting. I'm looking yeah. forward to meeting these children, clearing it up, First of all, that I don't know DJ Khaled and then going from there and seeing what their opinions is about t- taste development and how that he's all works. A, he's a bit of an idiot, old Khaled. Don't, oh, don't, don't worry too much. He's, 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 not, he's not the sharpest tool in the box. He's, he's very rich and very influential, but um, yeah, a bit of a waste of space, to be quite honest. His, his Twitter feed's like a minefield of idiocy. That's so, why the kids love him. They love idiocy. That's probably true. That's probably true. Um, I would guess that in... Um, a few years' time, there will be a kind of... Um, people will be definitely pushed into categories again. I feel like there's, a, there's a, a little bit of everything's opened up recently, but I can see what he means in terms of, you know, these algorithms and stuff, they are going to push people in the same direction. Mm. And what really worries me about the whole situation is that... Um, when when it gets to the stage where we're all pretty much just using streaming services to listen to our stuff, then we're going to see some odd things happen. I think for a start, the price is going to go up and mm. we'll have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, the, the record companies and the influential people with the money are really going to own what those suggestions are. Because I don't believe for a minute that the algorithm only takes into account the before and after and your mm. friend like this, oh, and because you played this. Oh, no, there's some weird stuff on there's there. De- you know, I mean, there's, there's no Taylor Swift on there, do you know what I mean? Mm. Nothing is being pushed. Maybe elsewhere on Spotify, but on the Discover Weekly section, I feel like it's genuine. Like you say, it may not always be that way. Well, also, I mean, I've had a couple of friends of mine had a, you know, this Yacht Rock thing was floating around a couple mm. of weeks ago and everyone was kind of like suddenly just listening to that because it was mm. an interesting documentary was on and all that sort of stuff. 
So, you know, a few Steely Dans went on the playlist and stuff like that. And then suddenly the next week, oh, the recommendations were like just a bucket of vomit. It was like <laughs> the cutting crew and, oh, Toto <laughs> no and all Journey. And, you know, it was like drive time in 1985. Oh, it was awful. And I just, yeah. if that's how it's going to work, mm. then I just... I don't want the robots. Give me a real person. Give me a real... Because if the real person gets it wrong, I'll just say you're an idiot and move on. Do you know what I mean? But you can't really argue with the robots. They don't... No, you can't because they'll come and kill you in your sleep. That's right, they will. And they won't even think twice about it because they don't have brains. So watch out what you say about them. Now on the What Goes Around podcast, let's work. This is where we go and visit various people who make the musical world go round in their place of work. So we could be chatting to bouncers, uh, venue staff people who work in record shops, writers, publishers, and all kinds of other music crafters about what goes into their day-to-day. So I was thinking about music that I don't know anything about, which is an odd thing to try and think about because obviously I don't know anything about it. And the reason that I started thinking this is very close to the Totally Wired Radio studios where I do my radio show for Acid Jazz, is a shop and this shop uh looks like an ordinary shop just like it could sell any old thing um and it's got a big brown sign at the top and it's got black writing on it and it's there's a window and all and i just thought what does what does that shop sell what does it sell and i looked at the the name above the shop and it said the k-pop pop shop and i went the what the what the what on closer inspection, it turns out there is a shop based there, right there in Bethnal Green, which oh, it sells K-pop. Ah, who knows? I, I don't really know. But I, I was so intrigued by the idea of a shop being opened up in London to sell Korean pop music that you don't even hear on the radio over here, um, that there could be, A, enough people interested in that, and B, in the age of downloads and streaming... What did they sell in there? What's going on? And why don't I know anything about it? So I took Anne and myself and we kicked down the door and uh, just... We tra- rang the doorbell. Yeah, very politely. <laughs> and said, excuse me, would you mind? Uh, we just tried to ask a few questions to find out what it was all about because uh, suddenly there's um, a form of music that's so popular that young people are opening shops themselves to sell ephemera and 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 fan-based grockle, we must know more. Gigaws, as my mum would say. Gigaws, what's that? Gigaws, and um, it's like... Uh, uh... Old shite. Yeah, <laughs> tat. <laughs> Old tat, exactly. That's grockle as well. That's Cornish <laughs> for things. Grockle is uh, things made out of seashells that you sell to people from London. <laughs> Love that. We're very curious about this place. So I work for a radio station called Jazz FM and Eamon works for Totally Wired. We're making a podcast together about music. Can we ask you some questions about this place? Okay. Yeah? Okay, cool. I promise they won't be anything too intense. We just want to know what it's all about and stuff. Yeah, because uh, I was walking past the other day and I'd never seen a K-pop shop. And <laughs> I know almost nothing about K-pop. And it's kind of amazing that you've built a little emporium here. 
first of all, can I ask what this shop is? What is this place all about? It's a K-pop shop, so it sells a lot of merchandise from like a lot of different bands. So like you can get a range of different things for like because a lot of people they like K-pop and they don't see a lot of places that sell this stuff. So is this yeah. the only one in London? Uh, there's some other shops in London, like oh, more wow. central London, like um, like so collab and stuff like that. And what are you actually selling? Uh, there's like face masks, um, plushies, cushions, and posters, and um, like shirts as well, and albums. Yeah. A lot of people buy albums or posters. Yeah. Are you a K-pop fan yourself? Yes. What? Tell me about some some of the bands that I should know about. Uh, TXT. Okay. What are they all about? Um, they're like Tomorrow by Together, and they they're like a new group from Big Hit, and they're like. They're really talented. They sound really like the same as like in live, in their like performances, and um, maybe like Twice and Blackpink. They're like girl groups that are like really popular as well, and also Day Six. They're also a good band. What is it about K-pop that you love so much? Um, I like the people, like, because there's a lot of events. There's, like, a pop-up store that goes on, like, random dance plays, where you, like, meet people and you, like, just dance, really. So it's a community? Yeah. And what's the what's the dancing? Is it, like, choreographed dancing or just freestyling? It's, like, the, the dances that they do in the music video. Okay. And, like, um, you just kind of, like, copy them and then you go places with other people and they play their songs and you like you get to like communicate with people that you don't know. And do the, the actual bands come over and, and tour over here ever or is it? Um like come to the UK. Yeah. yeah. Um I think the boys and the Rose and VAV they're all coming this year and then next year ATs is coming. I hope they're gonna come to your shop, right? Uh, yeah. They're gonna pop in and say yeah, hello. You've got a shop about it. You might <laughs> give them an invite though they'll pop in. <laughs> Is there a big, um, is there a big, are people very excited in London about the fact that this shop has opened now? Because um, there's not many, st- like, K-pop things, and yeah, I guess so, because a lot, you would either have to go online, and here you can just, like, do straight away, and get it if you want. Cool. Yeah. How long have you been open here? It's like two months, about, around there. Is it going good? Yeah. Yeah? A lot of people come, it's very busy on Saturdays. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> It's, it's some amazing stuff in here. I love all the um, little plushies and things. It is very strange because uh, I work in music, I'm a DJ and as a DJ as well. And uh, I don't think I know any single one of these bands, which is amazing. If you were gonna, if we were coming in here as novices and we wanted to get into the whole K-pop scene. Who are you gonna point us at? Yeah, who are you gonna point us to? And what would you, what would you encourage us to buy from the shop in terms of merch and stuff? What would you? Um, buy albums. Yeah. Um, I would suggest EXO. They're all very handsome. I've never seen such perfect skin. Yeah, but there's a lot of them, isn't there? One, yeah. two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. They're thinking of a football team. Yeah, that's like so. 
And then this is TXT. This is my favourite one. Yeah. Oh. Who's, who's this? This is Yanjun. Yeah. Rap Monster. He sounds good. That's BTS. That's <laughs> one everyone knows. This is like the most popular. Wow. It's a very specific kind of look that they all have, isn't it? Very kind of squeaky clean. Is that part of the appeal, do you think? Um, yes. <laughs> they all have good skin. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah, they're definitely uh, lots of nice hair as well, I'd say. Perfect hair. Some beautiful, beautiful dye jobs there. Yeah. 17x dot point itsy astro. We're going to have to find out about all these people. I think we are. <laughs> Uh, well, it's great. Uh, and the name of the shop is? Uh, K-pop K-Shop. K-pop K-Shop. And you are? Huh? Your name? Oh, Aaliyah. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so much for your help. And good luck with the shop. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I nearly got run over. Thank you. You're saving my life. I owe you. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. So, the man with the phonographic memory tonight is actor, writer and director Tim Plester. As an actor, Tim is best known for his work alongside Ricky Gervais in Afterlife and as the baddie Black Walder Rivers in Game of Thrones. He's popped up on everything from Wolf Hall to Doctor Who. He's been a Burns victim in Casualty and even appeared as Ian Curtis's disgruntled line manager in Control, the Joy Division biopic. As a writer and director, Tim has created a plethora of charming, quirky films such as Ant Music, which followed Adam and the Ants around on a late-night shopping trip, and Blake Seven Junction, which saw the cast of Blake Seven fill up at Newport Pagnell Services. Through his award-winning documentaries, Way of the Morris and The Ballad of Shirley Collins, Tim has helped put the spotlight back on traditional English folk music. His latest film, Southern Journey Revisited, takes a closer look and indeed listen to the roots of American music, all of which pretty much makes him the perfect guest for us. Hello, Tim. Oh, good evening, Eamon. <laughs> and me. Uh, yes, sorry. I'm here too. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and I just learned all about your amazing career, and now I'm slightly intimidated. Just going to sit oh, here quietly be, and all. I wouldn't. Uh, there's no need to be intimidated. You put the Tim in intimidate. Oh yeah, that's, <laughs> you've done that's that. good. That's yeah. lowered the tone. Yeah, yeah. I feel better now. Yes. Okay. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> Would you tell us, Tim, what is your first phonographic memory? Um, well, the first track I've, I've chosen um, is um, it's a track from. 1976 long playing album called Son of Morris On. We're talking here about um, a period in English folk music where they had um, decided to meld traditional tunes with electric rock accompaniment. Mm. We're talking about folk rock. I guess Fairport Convention are the, yeah, are the yeah. biggest uh, exponents of it, of kind of plugging in and... Well, you know, you, you, it kind of has its roots also in Dylan, plugging mm. in and being called a Judas, for, you know, daring to play folk <laughs> music with an <laughs> electric guitar. <laughs> made, made, you, he, he made a lot of men in tweed angry. <laughs> very, very See, like angry. The controversy was over by the time Fairport Convention came along, though, shortly. I think, like, yeah, I, th I, I think so. I think it wasn't <laughs> so controversial then. Um, but it's, I think it's difficult for us now to 
realize it was quite a it was it was quite a big thing yeah back then to yeah, do really to was. do this um and so this track um that I've chosen from Son of Morrison. The reason I've, I've specifically chosen this track, <laughs> there's actually no electric guitars in this. Oh, that's so a despite, good intro despite wasted Despite what then. I've just said, despite <laughs> what I've just said, um, this actual track from the album does not feature any sexy electric guitars. Mm. What it does feature is um, the Atherbury Village Morris Men. Um, so it's quite a big deal for them, and they turned up in their Morris dancing kit with their bells on and their sticks, and they were asked to just... They, they do went, their they, thing. They went up on the train dress. I'm not sure if they, they went up on the train. <laughs> They'd all nip into the toilet and like jingle about for a few minutes and yeah. then come in. I don't know. Uh, there is a picture of them on the way back to Oxfordshire, still in their kit. I'm going to believe so that they, believe they woke that they, up in the morning and they put on yeah. full bell regalia and they went on public transport all the way. So, I mean, the reason I've chosen this track really is because the sound of the Morris men and the sound of the bells and the sound of the sticks is something which instantly transports me back to my childhood growing up in the village because it was it was a big part of village life and a, a part a big part of our, our our family life but also because then it has this resonance with uh later on in my life as you alluded to i i, I ended up making a, a documentary film about morris dancing and about adabri and about the particular um history of morris dancing in that particular um village basically morris Morris dancing died out in this country mm. for 50 years, and it died out because of the First World War, when you had a whole generation of young men who went off to fight and die in the mud. And it, so it literally died out. And then as part of the folk revival in, in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, people were getting interested in folk music, and then through that they were getting interested in Morris dancing again or rediscovering these kind of dead... Mm. tunes and these dead dances and trying to bring them back to life. Morris dancing now is the butt of jokes quite a yeah. lot of the time. What was the re what was people's feelings about Morris dancing in 1976? Well, it's, it's, it's actually really interesting because I think part of the problem with Morris dancing as it's perceived now is it actually what it is, is that generation who revived it in the mid-70s are still kind of doing it mm -hmm. they're slowly stopping doing it because mm -hmm. they're all in their 60s 70s now but so when people think of morris dancing now they think of old men dancing and that's because it's those guys who the, the great thing about making uh the film was i i had all this super 8 footage that my granddad had, had shot of of the first dancing in 1975 and looking at that footage they're, they're young. Mm. They're 19, 20, 21. Yeah. It's, they're, they're, this is rebellious to them. And talking to them about it, they said when they first started dancing in the village, the people in the village were not sure about it. Suddenly these long-haired youths mm. were prancing around, hitting each other with sticks <laughs> and bells, and they were like, I'm not sure we want this in Adderbury, you know? Yeah. And now, But now it's become the you know the the norm and kind of this kind of quintessentially english picture box country file idea but it, it, my perception of it in the 70s it was actually it was a it, there was a punk element to it i think yeah. mm. that's what it feels like and looks like to me looking at that old footage and there's not many people watching it but they're just doing it and they're giving it large and it's interesting having just had you know the rugby uh, semi-final at the weekend um you know when they the New Zealand team do the hacker. Yeah. People have jokingly said, why don't the English team do a Morris dance for them? As a joke. It's like, yeah, yeah why, why don't, they, why why don't they, yeah. they do a Morris dance for them? 
makes a lot of sense um, to me. Be quite. In, I mean, I mean, see again, if it was rugby players doing it, I think it would be perceived differently. And again, it's a bit like watching this old Super Eight footage. They're mm. they're rough, tough, um, not macho men, but they're not. When they looking at these young guys doing it, it, it does look different mm. when yeah. it's when it's not old guys with beer bellies. That's yeah. that's the problem yeah. with the with the perception of of Morris dancing. And also, you know, it's a wider problem with English identity. We yeah. it, it's problematic yeah. because it instantly gets uh, you know attached to some kind of idea of right wing politics and yeah. Nigel Farage. That's 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 the problem with a lot of these English things and yeah. the English people being embarrassed about their traditions yeah. and their identity and in the way that, you know, Irish people, Scottish people, Welsh people are not. I'd love to see a few rugby players with a few bells on jumping It'd be around. something, wouldn't it? It yeah. would be a hell of a... Especially the pig's bladder on a stick. Let's go well, whacking them on the head. See, I mean, that, that's the other thing about Morris dancing that I think I remember uh, as a kid and what, you know, a, a, a track like this, this song, Happy Man, makes me think of is Morris dancing on, it, on its own is not necessarily that interesting actually but if you put it together with the other elements that go with it the live music the fool character who dances around with an actual pig's bladder and hits people the hobby horse which is some kind of fertility symbol you know if you put these characters around it and other stuff going on then it, it then it works and i think it works when you see it in context if you come to adderbury for instance and see it dances from that village performed in that village by people from that village whilst you're stood outside a pub having a pint of nut brown ale it kind of makes sense the problem is when you i think try and think of it as a dance in the way you might think of ballet it's mm. not it isn't for you to sit on a hard chair yeah. and watch it on a stage it doesn't work that way it's a more it's much more tribal in that way i think and I, I mean Although I wasn't quite as young and certainly wasn't as into it as you were. My, I had an uncle in Adderbury, so we'd go for day... They have a day of dance every year, and we'd go and do that. And that, that still goes on. It's yeah. massive now. I mean, it's a real yeah. big thing again. Yeah. But um, like you say, I think my memories of it were, were the, the fool was the yes. one. Because as a little kid, you'd be stood there, you know, just minding your own business, and this guy would come up and go, <laughs> on the back of your head with a, with a pig's bladder. I mean, that wouldn't feel like the... these days, surely. Oh, man, it's terrifying. That sounds you know? painful. Pig's he bladder. saw it as his role in life to traumatise young children <laughs> in the village of Adderbury. Brian, the, the guy's name is Brian Shepherd, who was the, the, the fool in the Adderbury village, Morris team, when I, when I was a kid. He was a friend of my uncle's. And, yeah, he, he's quite proud of the fact that he traumatised many it's, young children. It's not a passive thing, like you say. It's not like a chocolate box, sit back and watch it all. It, this happens around you. And I, yes. I think yeah. when I, I watched the film and, and saw you, like, looking at little pictures of you when you were, like, tiny, you're dressed up in the Morris gear and then, like, see these Cine 8 films and all that sort of stuff, it is something that everyone's part of and it's all going, you know, you, you are just as likely to be hit around the back of the head, just mm. as likely to be asked to, you know, ride the hobby horse or, you know whatever yeah. you know it happens to you around you you're part of it and it is part of that village and i think that's one of the, the great things about the film it really brought that home to me well you know that's what we decided to do when we made the film you know it's not it definitely isn't a film about morris dancing in general and it doesn't in any way attempt to give you a um, an idea about morris dancing throughout the whole country it's very specifically about morris dancing in adderbury and even more than that 
even more of a microcosm it's a, because there's more than one team in Adderbury and I very specifically concentrated on one team in the village. Is that what they're called, teams? Mm. Um, yeah, or... <laughs> Troops? I don't think they're called a troop. It's sides. I think they sometimes call themselves sides or teams, but not troops. I think troops would get you in trouble. What, I think well, it I depends would. where you go. <laughs> it depends where you go. I, I would I definitely say they were in Adderbury. I, you know, to the, to the point where half the village... Yeah. Followed one tradition yeah. and half of the didn't. Yep. And ne'er the twain did meet, and they would have okay. their own teams at either end of the village, and they kind of go, go past <laughs> each other, like in the uh, you know uh, the sharks and the jets. Maybe staring like at each other, yeah. but jingling as they go. It's quite a small village, so there's one point when you have to pass them on the yeah. other side of the street when you're crossing from one side of the village to the other. That happens. Like the orange men in Northern Ireland marching through. Yeah, just <laughs> blasting down your yeah. Well, yes. now that all of our preconceptions and biases have been smashed mm. about Morris dancing, should we hear the track? Well, let's, let's listen to it and let's think about the fact that they are in sound techniques in Chelsea where, you know, Nick Drake, Fairport, Elton John had all recorded. And then on this particular day, 1976, the Adderbury Village Morris men turn up on, the and, they, and they do this. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit. How happy that man free from all care that loves to make merry that loves to make merry about your Shirley Collins documentary because she's such an interesting character. So, I mean, the initial attraction of Shirley's story when we came to it was here was this folk icon uh, who had stopped singing in sometime in the 80s and was, no, was not singing anymore. Um, and there was a story there to be told. We thought about why had she stopped singing and, and what might that be, what might be the reasons behind that. Um, but then there was this secondary strand, which I was totally unaware of until we started making the film, which was the fact that uh, in 1959, she had travelled round uh, the deep south of America with um, Alan Lomax, uh, the ethnomusicologist. Um, so I knew about that trip, that 1959 trip, because it's the music that inspired the Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and Moby sampled it on yeah. his play album. And, you know, it's widely regarded as the, the most important yeah, I mean, collection of American, traditional American music, really. For me, as a, as a music fan, that point where that starts, the, the, the film just takes off, because suddenly it's like, there's just all these treasures, these amazing, amazing mm. one-off recordings of yeah. people literally on their front porch. Oh, who are you? Oh, we're from England. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, I'll play a song. Yeah, I'll play your song. And then they just... They just rip into The most it. amazing yeah. stuff you've ever heard with such grit and and genuine feeling for what they're singing. I don't know if a similar thing happened here, but in Ireland, they actually, there was a sort of national 
conference called like a festival that they had of Irish folk music in the 1500s or something mm. where they got everyone together to write these songs down you yeah. know because there was an awareness that they could just be lost but that's so true mm. isn't that amazing to think about that there could be this music that we've never heard mm. because it's yeah. like it's a just dinosaur gone. it's just completely gone yeah and we'll so, never have it now you know yeah. it's 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 gone but i mean even but even the ones that that we do have that still exist if you when you stop for a minute to think about the fact that how we have them is because of an oral tradition. Mm. So the only reason we have them is somebody sang it to somebody who sang it to somebody else through... We don't know. Some of these are centuries old. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them get changed en route. That's also what's interesting about them. And, yeah, um, yeah, because you do get this kind of like a Chinese whisper effect where, yeah. you know, like the, the story kind of evolves. And that's a wonderful thing as well because actually it's like, you know, you can take sections back in that and actually say, well, look, at this time, it was kind of, it was this sort of story. But before yeah. then, it was a bit more about this. And that in yeah. itself is quite, yes. you know, that, that's news. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like, like yeah. a song like Stagger Lee, which has all these different variations and different verses about this bad guy, Stagger Lee. Who was he? And like how much shit just got made up about him over the course of the song, kind of going from person to person. It's amazing to think about. It's so amazing as well that there's a music that, that just began that's just not derivative of it you know you're never going to turn on a track like that and be like oh somebody grew up listening to the smiths yes yeah yeah and hear all your influences at play here i'm enjoying them but i can hear all yes of them. exactly yeah, yeah. yeah um anyway should we move on to your second phonographic memory tell us about this one yeah okay so this is a bit of, it's a bit of a gear change i guess um from but Morris dancing, yeah, surely not. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess it's inevitable. That, <laughs> and I could have stayed on a folk uh, um, a folk theme for the whole three of them. But no, so when we, le- when we left Adderbury, uh, we moved to the big city or the small <laughs> market town of Banbury. My memory then of being in a slightly more urban environment, but still right at the edge of town we were. And I had a friend who was also called Tim, and he lived in the last house in the street, and it was all fields beyond his house. It isn't anymore, it's all been built upon. But he introduced me, my memory is he introduced me to Adam and the Ants. He had uh, the second Adam and the Ants album, Kings of the Wild Frontier, and I remember him playing that to me in his living room, in the house at the end of the street, and it just absolutely blew my head off. And it really changed my life the first time I heard the ants. Um, there was there's just something, there was something about, but it, it, was, it was the imagery as well. And the track I've chosen is, is the, 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 um, the title track from the album, Kings of the Wild Frontier. And it's main, main, I could have chosen a few songs from the album, but this is the one which I think has got the most distinctive use of the Burundi drumming in it, which, uh, you know, is, is, is such a tribal uh, sound. And, you know, Burundi is, is in East Africa, which is savannah. You know, it's, it's the cradle of humanity. This is kind of this sound of... There's a primal beat mm. to, this, uh, to this music, which, you know, Adam completely co-opts into what he's doing and he, he's taking you know like a, a magpie you know he's taking bits from here and a bit of that and he's smashing it all together uh with this kind of post-punk um driving squalling feedbacky guitar um 
but I, uh, underneath it, there's something primitive there as well, I think. And then he's, he's, I was watching the video to Kings of the Wild Frontier, and it's again, I, I found it really interesting to watch it again. He's, 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 he's right in the face of the camera. And we're talking about, uh, it still, still must be the early days of pop promos. Mm. And I'm, again, I'm not sure how many people had, it almost struck me like it was a, not dissimilar to maybe a kind of modern hip hop. He's right in the camera. He's totally engaging with the lens, and he's he's giving it attitude right into the lens. He's, he's not kind of actually, stepping back, performing. He's he's engaging with you yeah. and with the camera, and he's saying, "Look at me. Mm. Listen to this. Believe in what I'm saying. You can be in my yeah. gang." It's not just a passive, lovely film of him performing. Yeah, yeah. I think I think another thing is because well, I remember the first time I heard it, and it had a a sort of similar effect on me but you know just the first lines of we are family of wild nobility we are family mm. now first of all oh so i'm part of your family yeah. we me as well <laughs> yeah and then wild nobility i don't mind if i do <laughs> <laughs> but it does i mean it just sounds amazing and then when you yeah. i was the same age as you it was seven eight years old when that was all coming out and i remember just thinking whoa this is this, this yeah. is far out it's and pirates I, it's Apache Indians, it's mm. wow. And when it's you're like, seven or eight, pirates are Come on, I mean, it's, it's all there, isn't that. it? So hey, listen, if the single failed, he could have made a great, great career as a children's party entertainer. <laughs> yes. I'm sure yeah. that's what he was going for. So was that it? You were committed Adam and the Ants fan after that? Absolutely. I mean, I. the only... It's interesting, and we touch on this a little bit in Way of the Morris, actually, because we go through an old photo album with my dad, and there's photos of me dressed up in various... Uh, costumes. I used to love dressing up as a kid, and there is one picture of me dressed as Noddy Holder. <laughs> How do you dress Slade, as Noddy Holder with the top the hat chops. with the mirrors on the it? Mirrors oh, on, yeah. sorry, of course. Um, so, so I had be, I'd kind of been into Slade, mm. um, and I, for one Christmas, I remember getting their album Slade Est which is the most Slade something can be. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Sladest thing. <laughs> Um, and also at that same time, and obviously you're not allowed to really say this anymore, but I was into Gary Glitter as well, not Another Banbury but, Lance. Uh, and he is, that, there you go, there's an interesting connection, yeah, Gary Glitter from Banbury, Mr. Paul Gadd. But you, know, but, you know, if we can talk about Glitter for a second, you know, there's something about him as well. Do you want to be in my yeah, gang? Yeah. Also, not anymore, Gary, but back then, back then yeah. we really did. And actually, you know, uh, Adam and Anson and Gary Glitter basically did the same thing where they, um, they had two drummers. Uh, and, yes. and the the beat we talked about that tribal Burundi beat, that was a very unusual sound mm. at the time. <laughs> it's very interesting. I looked on uh, Wikipedia the other day about it all, and the, the Adam was inspired by this. Is a, there's a, a track by Burundi Black, I believe, is the name of the artist or the song. And if you listen to that, it's clear he's basically stolen <laughs> it wholesale. <laughs> but then if you look at Wikipedia about Burundi Black, it talks about people who were influenced by this song. And it talks about Joni Mitchell, and there's a specific song. It talks about um, the Beastie Boys, and there's a track on um, Paul's Boutique, mm. which samples this Burundi Black track. And it talks about Def Leppard having a song that was inspired by it. And doesn't mention Adam and the Ants at all. <laughs> Um, which is very, this is Wikipedia, is it? This is Wikipedia. Someone needs to have a we word. We can just update that a, shit. Let's just get on there and make it, make it right. And the other thing about Adam stealing things wholesale is um, 
if we fast forward to his, the next album, uh, Prince Charming, um, the, the song Prince Charming from that... Takes is, all my powers of reserve not to go... Ah, <laughs> hey, no, yeah. um, that's stolen as well. No, who do you from, Again, we're into Gary Glitter territory. No. Not quite as bad. Rolf Harris. Rolf. Oh, dear. There's a song by Rolf called War Canoe. Listen to it. War Canoe Can. Da, da, da. It goes like that. It's basically Adam. Oh. You've nicked that as well. Where were the lawsuits? I, th- I think he did have to pay Rolf oh, really? some money oh, for okay, that one. Yeah, enough. I think he did. I've got to get down to Adam and the Ants now. We just go mental. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this Let's is, go yeah. mental. This is so keeping in mind. I feel extremely left out because this is. I was born in 1985, so I missed oh, Top of the Pops too. Is probably where yeah. I first saw Adam and the Ants. So I'm very keen to share this tribal experience with you guys. Let's hear it. A new royal family, a wild nobility. We are the family. Uh, Kings of the World Frontier fades away. And it does fade. It just slow, the drums slowly. They, they just, yeah, they just disappear yeah, off into disappear the... Disappear over the horizon, yeah. yeah. I have to say that uh, once upon a time, uh, I was DJing at the Swart in Oxford upstairs and I was playing all kinds of breakbeat stuff and kind of mid, maybe not trip-hop, a bit more up and atom than trip-hop, uh, almost big beat. But it was kind of breakbeats, you know, just scratching things over the top and making things happen. And this one time, I brought Kings of the World Frontier mm. and I dropped Kings of the World Frontier over the top of this breakbeat perfectly. It was so good. <laughs> and everyone went absolutely bananas. <laughs> absolutely bananas. And I just let it play like the first verse and then quickly mixed it out again. Nice. But the place went crackers. Absolutely. And I never managed to do it again. I don't know how I managed to get it in time the first time, but it was just a... It's oh, that off. is a beautiful Just moment. Just leave it out there. Don't yeah, never yeah, try. Yeah. Never go back. <laughs> no, never yeah. go back. I did try and it wasn't as good. <laughs> I love it when that ah, happens though. Mm. Sometimes that works well. N- not on the same level in any way whatsoever. But like if you're playing like a nice, um, uh, like something with a nice fast sort of, uh, like a nice Afrobeat thing. And then I like to mix in a Malcolm McLaren double dutch Yay. with oh, the skipping. Yeah, there you go. Sometimes yeah, it works yeah. perfectly. Sometimes it lands on the glass, <laughs> but that's <laughs> DJing. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff, man. So good. good stuff. Anyway. Uh, so when we were making the Shirley Collins film, one of the things we did to, we did a Kickstarter campaign for it to, to raise some finances. And one of the rewards was uh, an album of, music that we we basically got people to do cover versions of songs that Shirley had sung in her career and one of the um people that we approached to do a track for the album was Marco Peroni the guitarist from Adam and the Ants who I'd befriended as a result of making the short film 
Ant Muzak, which you talked which, about, you which said in the introduction. And he wasn't sure which track to do, so I suggested a track called um, Turpin, which is about Dick Turpin. Tandy Highwoman and connection. There was our little connection to Stan and the Liver. That's and a few people good. got it. Maybe, maybe that's another one that Adam just slight, slightly thought. That's a, that's a bloody good idea. I'll stick oh, that next to the Burundi drums and that bit from Gary <laughs> Glitter. I'll get that on a third album. That'd be brilliant. But it, it, those, those records as well, they, they um, certainly they were so seminal at the time. And mate, if you weren't into Adam and the Ants, then you were nobody. Yeah. And even when you said that name, as soon as you said Marco, I just wanted to go, Marco, Mary, Terry Lee, Gary Tibbs, and yours truly, in the Naughty North and in the Sexy South, we were all singing, I got the mouth. What is happening? And you got the mouth. And we got the mouth. I will never forget that as long as I live. It's horrible for you, because you're kind of on the outside of that, obviously being a bit young for that thing. I enjoyed the rapping. I mean, it's not horrible. He did, that was the first, it was a very early white man rap. It's called Ant Rap. Yeah, that's true. That track. And that was what... Here's another one for you. See if you remember this one. Ha, ha, hena, ma, he, hana, ma, hana. Hey? Mohawk. No, it's a mohawk. <laughs> mohawk at the end. Is that advantage there? Mohawk. I've reached my, my Adam limit. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> it is we really hot in here as well. We can all be forgiven <sighs> for not remembering. It is. I kind of... I mean, we should do like that bit on, uh, on the Stand and Deliver video where he jumps through the, the screen. We could jump through the window in a, in oh, a, in a marvellous diddly quack quack moment. I think that might go wrong. Well, didn't it go wrong for him? Because I think he, he broke his chest oh, and he? fractured his, his elbow and all sorts of stuff. That's commitment. Yeah, he, he messed himself up there. Or what I remember from that now is when we made Ant Music, we had the bass player, Gary Tibbs, mm. um, came and did a cameo in the film. And there's a bit in, in the film when we dance the Prince Charming down the aisles of the supermarket. Because I'm, I'm in that film as well, uh, playing uh, Merrick, one of the two drummers, uh, who I got to meet as well at the premiere, which yeah. was, you know, great. Uh, but Gary did a bit where he he watched us doing the dance and he, he was telling us about what he remembers about them doing the Prince Charming dance in the Prince Charming video with Diana Dawes. God, that must have been fascinating. <laughs> and the choreographer just kept saying, or the director just kept saying, more panache. That was the note. <laughs> that was the continuing note. More panache. So we took that on board and we tried to give as much panache as we could. I can imagine if, I, if I'd been like, because well, he, he must have been like 18, 19 or something then, I, I'd have probably just said again, what does panache mean? Like <laughs> I'll, I'll give him my interpretation of what it might be. Hopefully, it's the right thing. It is, it's a joy that that scene when the, when you're all dancing down the down the, the aisles as well. It's a real a real beautiful moment, I have to say. You know? It was one of the highlights of my life getting to yeah dance the charming and actually having ants around you. Real having ants. Gary Tibbs. What? Yeah. Cool. Gary Tibbs was in the building. Yeah. Don't, isn't it nice when you get to, when you're really into something as a kid and then it all comes around, you've orchestrated your life so that a dream can be fulfilled? As a, You know, it's like you yeah. feel like you're doing justice to the seven, eight-year-old who first heard that Adam and the Ants record. You've done very well, Tim, because, you know, you've, you've, like, you've totally been you and the Morris dancing have become like a, a fused folk enigma. You're just and, ticking off childhood and dream boxes. I mean, I mean, in a way, I mean, yeah, there's an element, there's definitely an element of that involved, yeah. I mean, yeah. that was kind of, I think, because uh, I, I went to college with Tim, and we were both of the same ilk in that we had lots of things that we were very geeky about, and we would learn 
every bloody line of everything and we endlessly repeat it back to each other. And we, so we just know all these little things, do you know what I mean? And actually, you know, we did try and make those things become our lives. I remember we were obsessed with Fry and Laurie and we, oh, we did we were, terrible yeah. stand-up trying to, trying to be Basically Fry ripping it off, weren't we? Yeah, it was yeah. pretty yeah. poor, but... But it was like, that was the whole thing. It was like, we wanted it so bad, you know, and, and you ended up taking it a step further by actually, you know, making a film where you get to be in Adam and the Ants. And, uh, and a Blake Seven, <laughs> yeah. a, a similar thing, a Blake Seven Junction film, which is a, a similar kind of vibe where you, it's something you were just really into that you, yes. because you knew all this stuff about it, you wanted to share it out. It was an excuse to basically re-immerse myself in those worlds mm. um, and try and create something new and fresh out of it and make these small comedy films. There's a third film called um, uh, World of Wrestling as well, which is about that era of... Um, basically, I looked. At, I basically realised as I, after we made uh, Ant Music that it was really about a specific era in my life, 1981, when uh, um, Prince Charming came out, Blake Seven ended and wrestling was at its, the height of its powers in on British TV. And th so the films are connected in, in that sense. And it was a way of going back to that period in my life and, and kind of immersing myself in it, but doing it with, with love and reverence. Uh, and then I, I, they, they got called parodies by some people and I really didn't see it as that. They were really made with, 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 I, with I, heart. I, I really felt like it, it wasn't, it, it, it never, ever came across to me in any of those films as a piss take. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was something that was done with love. And actually, it's quite a rare thing to have comedy as gentle as that. They, they would, they've definitely made, I think, they, from the right place, we tried to, to make them. And what was interesting about making them is that I made them with this director called Ben Greger, who didn't really grow up in the UK, and he, a bit younger than me, and he didn't know anything about Adam Neant's Blake Seven or wrestling. So you between got on really well with him. So between the two of us, what you I think what you hopefully then end up making as well is not a film which is just full of self-referential mm. stuff for other fans. That's all in there as well. But it was always we always said the films had to work as 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 pieces of of, of storytelling. That if you didn't know who these characters were, it still worked, and they all worked as a kind of dysfunctional family in an environment that people could recognise, and, and the Adam and the Ants one was a big hit with mums because it's basically the supermarket. They all What they all recognised in it, if they, even if they didn't know who Adam and the Ants were, they recognised a family dynamic trying to get the shopping done. It's really interesting how those films have aged um, because when we made them, we were trying to actually make a point of the fact that it wasn't 1981 anymore. We made them in... It must have been about 1990, late 90s. Mm. But when you look at them now, there's in, we're in the service station in the Blake 7 one and we're smoking because you could still... You they, smoke they, in the service they, station. You could smoke in the... It's, That's it's the sound very, of my brain exploding. They now look dated <laughs> yeah. as well. The, the kind of the, the juxtaposition of the modern world with the 1981 yeah. world looks less um, clear. So... Let's talk a little bit more about uh, more recent history and moving on, because we've gone from you being a very small child. Yes. And then you being a slightly bigger child uh, with ideas of becoming wild nobility. Oh, absolutely, yes. And, uh, and what's your third phonographic memory? The third track that I've chosen, um, 
I've chosen this specifically because it connects me directly to Eamon. Um, so me and Eamon met doing um, a drama course, drama A-level in Banbury at the North Oxfordshire Technical College, as it was known then. Um, and I, when Eamon asked me to, to come and um, do this, um, I did see it as an excuse to... I don't know if I've ever really told him that... He's really, he's very, he's very responsible for a lot of my musical listening, because when I met Eamon in whatever year it must have been, 1987, 88, my musical listening was not great. I had shunned all the folk stuff that my dad had played. I'd enjoyed my Adam and the Ant phase, but beyond that, I'm not really sure where where I'd ended up or what I was listening to. And I met Eamon, and it was Eamon who basically showed me this this doorway into a, into another world, yeah. and it was the world of indie music, essentially. Now, what? I, sorry to interrupt you, but I have to get a picture of this in my yes. mind. What? What? Um, phase in terms of Eamon's personal style was he in? Was this the goth phase? Was, was this the hair yeah. up with soap? The phase? hair was up. Okay, d yeah. and he was, describe you when you saw the him. Hair the hair was up. Time. Yeah. He was thin as a rake. Uh -huh. Oh, I Dressed <laughs> all in black. Winkle I, I never, I could never work out how he got his trousers on. <laughs> it was like they'd been sprayed on. Um, sometimes there was eyeliner. I think is my memory Probably of it. Most of the time, and, most and of the time. definitely black nail varnish. As black well. nail varnish. I'd never really met anyone quite like Eamon so before. So he stood out quite a lot. Yeah, he did. He did. And I was, I was. There was something about that that I found obviously found Alluring. attractive. Oh, thank you. Uh, and we bonded really over the the comedy stuff. Yeah. Uh, but then beyond that, Eamon was able to show me into this world of. The things that now seem so obvious to me, you know, the Cure, Echo and the Bunny Men, the Smiths. I'd, I didn't know. I didn't know what this was. I didn't know this world existed. I li still listened to um, the charts. That was what I thought music was, uh, and I think my only idea of what might be slightly alternative was prefab sprout i think i'd quite yes. liked uh, yeah, prefab did, sprout yeah. and i think you kind of got me into them and which I, and i still love jumping them. frog albuquerque that was the biggie yeah that was the yeah. biggie uh, i hate that song so much oh. there's not many songs on my list, but that is on my list. i worked in the local record shop and that gave me the opportunity to listen to everything and i would voraciously go through all of these different things and occasionally find something amazing and then as we have talked in the past and uh, when you've got the DJ sort of gene inside you, you then have to go and foist your opinions um, at other you people. You can't just enjoy it yourself. You have to force have other to people to listen yeah. to it. That's where the pleasure comes from. And I think because uh, we were drama students, the great thing about being a drama student is unlike any of the other people on campus is that we had a room. Mm. So the drama studio, yeah. there was maybe 15 to 20 people that were allowed in this room and it was our little kingdom and it had a... I had a terrible little record player and occasionally had a tape player and stuff. But I'd just come in there every day and just try and foist something on someone. And, I, you know, most of the time it was met with howls of derision. But occasionally, mm. you know, you got the 
secure or, or, or echoing the banning. I thrilled when Tim came along then and was like, yes, please, voice your music he on me. He took me under his wing, he really did. It yeah. was, it was, it Showed was me the way. <laughs> but I think as well, we, because uh, we were really into comedy and especially Fry and Laurie when they were like really at the start of their career. And we used to swap tapes, you know, and uh, again, I'd get comedy records out from the shop and we could we take those and swap those around. Steve Martin, I remember you. Steve Martin, wild Steve and crazy Martin, guy, yeah. all that kind of stuff. It was all really important to us. And I guess, uh, you know, we we were kind of thinking about comedy, but then as soon as you're moving in each other's worlds, you just do start to pick up stuff off oh, each other. Especially at that age. Yeah. Knowing the, all the words to something and being able to riff with somebody. It was the same with me uh, growing up with the young ones. You just used to yeah. just constantly quoted someone and that just became your entire vernacular. Mm. And I would say it's probably the same for you guys. My whole, my, my brain's resting state is just made up of, of compilations <laughs> of quotes and lines from those TV shows and yeah. stuff that you get so obsessed with as a, as a young person. Because I got um, off you, I can remember as well, getting more into comics. Because I was into comics because yeah. I, I had an American upbringing. So I had lots of things like X-Men and all that sort of stuff knocking around. But then I, I, I kind of drifted away from it, and then did I show you some Alan Moore? You comics? showed me Watchmen, oh, wow. uh, and that that mate was that was that was the whole lid come yeah. off. And actually, more the bigger memory I've got was Watchmen was amazing, but it was a very thick book, and it mm. took me quite a long time to get through it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but you bought me for Christmas a thing by Bill Sankovich yes. called Stray yes. Toasters, which Stray is toasters. about a child molesting demon that takes up residence in a toaster mm -hmm. and tempts children to use the knife to get their burning toast out of it. I mean, that it was just... I had never seen anything so weird and frankly spooky in my life and he gave Yet me this to be adapted into a netflix tv series uh, is, is it oddly been? no i mean it's surely oh, it, it must be, be. Yes. well who better yeah, yeah. you do that <laughs> you've still got i don't know if i still got it no. i easy to get i think it's out of I've long out of print three issues and the one that's missing i know who has it what yeah and I'm gonna, let's make I'm never this gonna thing see happen. it again i'm gonna get that guy i'm gonna get him <laughs> i'm gonna get my thing back but um, yeah, and it, it was that time basically where we were very young and impressionable, and you know, everything was being shared. It was you had loads of new stuff, and I had loads of new stuff, and I think um, that drama room gave us the time and space without every meathead and idiot, and there were a lot of those mm. in our hometown. Yeah, without them getting on top of you, we could actually be ourselves there. No one tried to beat me up in the drama studio for having spiky hair and yeah. and nail varnish on. But the moment I stepped outside, I, you've never seen anyone run as fast in Winkle Picker boots. Oh, wow. I mean, I was like Usain fucking Bolt. Usain Bolt in eyeliner. I don't know if you remember the other seminal thing you did for me is basically the first time I suffered heartbreak. Oh. Uh, the first girlfriend, the proper girlfriend I had who, who left me and, and, and destroyed me. Um, I went round to Eamon's house that night, or a couple of nights later. He said, come round, I'll, I'll look after you. And he, he basically said, sit down here, I'm going to play a film for you that you, 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 you've probably never seen. It's called With Nail and I. <gasps> Is that what I did for you? He, he showed me With Nail and I. I'm nicer than I thought I yeah. was. <laughs> I, that's why I wanted to that's come good... on here and tell you this stuff, because I don't think oh, I've ever had the opportunity God. to really tell you before. That well, these things are really important and define... Yeah. have defined me as a human being. And I wow. do remember you were very heartbroken. I was quite worried about you. 
So I remember asking, I do remember that, yeah. yeah. And it she was ran with off with a fireman. Sweat. Yeah. Are they still together? No, but she married a man called Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> Says it all, doesn't it? Wow. Yes. Rocky Pratt. <laughs> no. Yeah, Rocky Pratt. Wow. They're That's not amazing. together anymore. Rocky Pratt sounds like a small village. It's, 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 it's over there by the stone quarry. You can't miss it. So after you guys both watched, you know, obviously you'd seen it before, but once you'd both seen With Nell and I, you must have been quoting 80% of the oh, films. Still do. Like I mean, still, yeah. yeah. Still do yeah. every day. Yeah. yeah. There is not a day goes by when I don't say something like, like the classic one I use all the time <laughs> is whenever anyone does something that is going to lessen the trouble, I just say, that sense with Nell. You know, and that, and that, and I've said that to people, and they look at me, and, and they don't yeah. even know what yeah. I'm talking yeah. about. But you know, for me, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. That moment where you can see someone who's going to do something nutty, and then they pull back <laughs> from the abyss, and you go, "That's sense with no. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it." Oh, man, what a great so this yes. time, when yes, I opened so, the door to interviews, yes, yes. and what what, well, what you well, see, what you've alluded to there is that drama studio space, which was our sanctuary. And it was, it was painted black, I seem to remember. Yeah. And it had mirrors on one side where occasionally we would have to do ballet lessons. I don't it's, know if you blank that from your memory. I, I'll never forget. Yeah. On a, my memory of it is on a Monday night. Uh, so the other thing about being a drama student is you actually end up doing more um, hours work than any other subject as well because you do shows and you have to rehearse them. and, and Build the set. Yeah, everything. And we, most of the stuff we did seemed to be devised stuff as well. So it wasn't even like reading a script. It was we have to build the, the bricks to make the show to put on. And I remember we used to rehearse on Monday nights. And every Monday night, when we would turn up at our allotted slot to begin rehearsals, there would be somebody else in that room and they would overrun every single week. And it was a band. And we were really annoyed with them. They never finished on time. We didn't really care who they were initially, but it transpired that they were a band called Ride, mm. who were two of them, I think, was, or one of them maybe even was a student at the, Andy, the drummer. And Loz was, Loz, was, a, was they, at the college. Uh, no, I think Mark, Mark went as well. The right. only one he didn't was Stevens from Oxford. So I think, I think, I think they all used to basically come in and they'd rehearse in our studio and that's it it was just an annoyance out, basically we used to basically kick them out we used to kick ride out of our rehearsal space because yeah, hey, you've overrun again you've overrun again we're coming in here to rehearse our Berthold Brecht yeah, no, no one wants to hear you write your original songs they want to hear us do <laughs> Guy Fawkes or whatever it was we, we did did do know, a Guy Fawkes yeah. which had some Cure music in it well, I was, I was See, going yeah. to choose that track but then I thought and I the should... monochrome set Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought I would choose a track by Ride um, because of this connection to uh, my drama roots and Eamon and, and Banbury. And um, I can then remember there was another independent record shop in the town where Eamon didn't work called Chalkies. Mm -hmm. And I can remember going into Chalkies one day and going through the racks and finding the first EP by Ride, and it had ro Red Roses um, on the cover. And the first track on that EP is called Chelsea Girl. It's so an absolute banger as well. It's probably yeah. still my favourite Ride. Yeah, it's a great record. Track. I, I, oh, the other great thing about that whole era was that um, 
when, first of all, it happened quite quickly where they were in our drama studio, we were trying to get them out, and then like actually started listening to them, and then there was another record shop in town called Movement, and Martin mm. from Movement picked up on the fact that Ride actually weren't just another shit band. And he said to me, no, you need to go and see them. And so we went and saw them rehearse somewhere else, I think it was at the mill or somewhere. But the, they were just unbelievably good, and we were like shocked at how mm. amazing they were. And then it was like, I saw their first gig and we, I where went to see... Where did they play? What, where was their first the gig? The first one, I think, was The Mill. And I've got the poster. I took the poster <laughs> down. Yeah, I've got the poster at home. It's quite a, a rare artefact now. But um, wow. I've still got their very first... was hand-drawn by uh, Andy, I think. Uh, and it was, like a, it was like the front of a car which turned into a mouth and just said ride in the corner. Yeah. But they had these songs, and Chelsea Girl is like a really classic jangly song, and then Drive Blind's got this amazing wall of feedback that came in. Yeah. And the interesting thing was that in that year, from us kind of barging into them and turning to get out so we could rehearse our terrible plays, <laughs> uh, the, the following year, they were signed to Creation Records, and it was one of the very few times in my life where I saw people who were literally... Mm within touching distance in my hometown, suddenly made it. Yeah. And it was the most impressive and wonderful thing. It was thing. inspiring, I think, as well, wasn't and we it? Were because all... you, this, can, this can happen. It can, you know, I, I, I guess I've never really thought about it in those terms I before. I think the, but... one of the interesting things is we were all really stoked for them. We were really happy. Yeah. Everyone was fucking bang behind them. So yeah. go on, lads. It was great. It's true, actually. And there's an interesting, if you saw their first gig, I saw, I know they've reformed since, but I saw their last gig. <laughs> before they split up originally at the Royal Albert Hall. Wow. Oh, wow. When they were supported by uh, a band that no one had heard of called Supergrass. Well, who were they? Yeah. Who were they? Um, yeah. But, but you, you're right. We were, we were, you know, we were made up for them. And it felt like you, it was, these are, these are our local yeah. boys and they're, they're doing good. Should we hear it? Yeah. Let's give a listen. Ride. really interesting how as Eamon pointed out earlier there's kind of this tribal thread through all of the phonographic memory tracks that you've picked you mm. know the the uh, obviously the Morris dancing and then the Adam and the Ants with the tribal drums and him inviting you into his tribe yeah. and then you kind of found your own tribe with Eamon at drama yeah. school yeah, yeah. which is a really nice sort of common um common thread yeah I, 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 I think that's true you know and I think um the kind of music that I listen to now most is is probably kind of um, a for, some form of folk music, mm. not necessarily old um, field recordings from 1959, although, you know, I love all that stuff as well, and there's so much of it. But that's the great thing about it. You can scratch the surface and then you realise, oh, my God, there's there's hundreds of hours of this yeah. stuff. Where, where This will never, this will never end. Um, or it will be you know, kind of more modern takes on folk music or Americana, I guess, is... is, is I, I guess I, I found myself drawn now to 
music that's kind of rootsy mm. in some way. I think that's that's kind of my my bag these I days. I got to say, as a, a DJ and and music nerd, I'm I'm absolutely delighted that I had that effect on you because really that really is all I ever want to do. Really, yeah. is that my the the greatest things that happened to me were, you know, little moments like that where I suddenly got David Bowie or I was listening to my sister listen to it and I suddenly thought, this is for me, this is this is the one and I didn't know it existed and then I did and then everything changed. And certainly when I was very young, I, it was about trying to fit in, trying to find my people and I guess that's yeah. what we were doing at that time. But even now when I'm playing music, you know, I like nothing more than finding something and thinking, oh, I'm going to play this on Saturday. And mm. someone's going to come up to me and say, what the hell is this? And it's going to make them happy. And yeah. it's going to make them feel like they belong to something. And I, I just think that's that's what it's all about, really, at the end of the day. Yeah. And I mean, is that the same kind of thing that you're trying to do with the films that you make now? Because obviously they're quite niche. And you're telling yeah. a story that maybe, you know, hasn't been told, um, like with the Shirley Collins film. Uh, for example, but also, you know, all these, the, the short films that you were talking about, you kind of put them out there to find a tribe that identifies with them a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I'm, I'm very aware that it's a, it's a minority interest. And what's your, when, when's the, the next one out? Because your, your next film is basically, again, come off the back of, of the Shirley Collins where you yes. kind of go back to America and experience that whole road trip for yourself. Yes, yeah, so last, so last, this time last year, in fact, um, we were touring the Ballad of Shirley Collins around America. It had premiered the previous year at the London Film Festival and had a release uh, in the UK and had come out on DVD. And then last year, we took it to the States. And um, what we tried to do is not spread the film far and wide, but to create a tour of the film, a kind of boutique uh, tour where we try to find as many towns and cities that Lomax and Shirley had visited in 1959 where we could show the film. And then what we then did en route between the cities and towns is we took a camera and we filmed a travelogue and we would turn up in these places where we knew there'd been 59 years previously and try to look for echoes of the people and the music that they had recorded. And we got amazingly lucky. Some We did a little bit of prep for some people, but some days we literally just turned up somewhere and went into a shop and asked somebody about traditional music and we would somebody would recommend a couple of phone numbers. We would call somebody up and say, hello, we're from England. Do you remember Alan Lomax coming in 1959? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, are you doing anything now? No, can we come over? And it was pretty on the fly and quite um, scary in that respect. But we managed to, to somehow cobble together a coherent yeah. story um, and, a, and a travelogue through those parts of the Deep South and found quite a lot of people who either still alive i mean they're old people now but who remember it and then descendants of people that they recorded and we were also there during the the primaries uh, uh, the uh, the elections last year so we also saw it as a opportunity to test the pulse of the nation yeah. uh, you know obviously an interesting what was the, i can't um, wait to see it now <laughs> well, i mean that that's what the argument about what track. is the actual film really about and on one level it's 
it's as much about that, I think, as the Lomax archive. There's lots of Lomax archive in there. Uh, there's also field recordings that, that we make on the trip, but it is also about trying to get a sense of America. Tim, it's been lovely to see you again. It's on, been a delight. On many yeah. levels. Such a pleasure to meet you and chat to you as well. Thanks, Anne. Thank Thanks, Simon. Uh, well, thank you for coming on. And because this is, you know, a, a labour of love, we do actually have a little present for you. Just going to take my headphones off. Can be a bit okay. noisy. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Ah. Tim. He's all right, everyone. Tim, you yeah. sound very sceptical. That's not the response we were hoping for when we said just, you had a present. Yeah, you're supposed to go, oh, It's not a oh. joke, it's a present. It's, um, it's a present. Shall I open this close Please to the microphone? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it. kind of rectangular-shaped object. Yellow. That's a good wrap, um, really. Thanks. It's very nicely wrapped. Well, you did, it was your daughter's birthday, wasn't it? I've so been wrapping a lot of stuff, to be honest. And I she think did try actually and... two things. Oh, hang on. I think you're feeling it. Yes. I'm bringing you back to your youth. It's some face paint. <laughs> oh, and an adamant biography. There you go. <laughs> Relive you have those that biography already? I don't have this autobiography. Is it an no. authorized biography? It is. Is it oh, actually okay. Adam? I think it's. I think it's probably yeah. Adam doing. Good. It. Oh, it's an autobiography. But, you know... The, the autobiography. But yeah. when you yeah. read it, I expect you to have a stripe across your nose. <laughs> get, hang on, there isn't any white here. I know. The colours are yeah. yellow, red, Well, you blue could do the black. two red... I could stri- do the, yeah. the Prince Charming two red yeah, bits. Yeah. My daughter's going to want to do this. That's the thing. Yeah. She loves to paint faces. Well, exactly. Usually mine. I had to fight my daughter to keep of course hold of that did. today because yeah, she saw that with, I'll tell you, you bought me some more face paints for my birthday. No. No, no, not this time, mate. Well, Listen, thank you so oh, much. It's very sweet of you. Thank you. Well, we just want to say thank you for coming in. It's been lovely talking to you and I can't wait to see the new film and uh, whatever your next few things on TV are. I think are you doing the Wizzle Gummits thing? Yes, I think I'm allowed to, to it's, mention it's that. It's on yes. IMDb. Yeah, there you go. Yes, so I am. I am briefly in Worth of Gummage. That was that was fun to That's be a, to play a scarecrow. I can uh, just. You're going to make a yeah. fabulous scarecrow. I can tell. Yeah, you might not be able to recognise me. It's quite the makeup's quite yeah. extensive. Excellent. It, it was an hour and a half in makeup every wow. every day. Yeah. So that's not a small part. Surely not. Wow. Except briefly. I've got to go and do some um, additional dialogue recording for it. Okay. I think maybe even this week. So I'll get to, I'll get to see a bit of it then. I haven't really seen any of it yet. That <laughs> I, um, is an absolute I got that the, the voice. The, I've actually stolen, um, you know, uh, oh, yeah. John Fairtrue's voice for it. That last again. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> with Mackenzie Crook. Well, no, Mackenzie Crook's playing Words of Gummage. Oh, but when I heard Mackenzie's was not doing a John Pertwee impression, I took it upon myself. Well, I'm to, doing that. Somebody <laughs> needs to honour <laughs> honour the Pertwee here. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do try and give it my best. Um, well, I think ah, Fabi, yeah. I think that sounds amazing. And thank <laughs> you so much for tonight. To Thanks, Tim. Thank you very much. <laughs> If you enjoyed today's show, feel free to get in touch with us at whatgoespod at gmail.com or you can contact us on Twitter at whatgoespod or Instagram at whatgoespod.